From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers joins us live as the city turns 150. We'll talk about police accountability, space command, and rapid growth. Then the voting technology company Dominion, based in Denver, fights back against claims of voter fraud. He knew from the outset, the complaint alleges that there was no evidence that the election was rigged. And that's why even Mr. Giuliani didn't make those claims in court, but he made them on television and online where they would do maximum damage, but face minimal scrutiny. Plus, working to make sure language isn't a barrier during an emergency like a wildfire. Then we visit Hidden Valley Road and hear one family story that could help overcome the stigma of schizophrenia. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colorado Springs turns 150 this year. It's the second largest city in the state, also one of the fastest growing along the Front Range. The city also faces the challenges that come with issues like growth, political tensions, and overcoming a pandemic. Joining us to talk about the past, present, and future of Colorado Springs is the city's mayor since 2015, John Southers. And thanks for joining us, Mayor Southers. Andrea, glad to be with you. We should start out by saying that your name's pretty familiar to Coloradans across the state. You're a Republican and previously served as Attorney General of Colorado and head of the Colorado Department of Corrections. But I want to ask you about Colorado Springs. A big part of its identity and history is the presence of military bases. The Trump administration, just before leaving, decided to move the headquarters of the Space Force, which is a new branch of the military, to Alabama. Many had expected it to be in Colorado Springs. What were your first thoughts when you heard that news? Uh, Deep disappointment, Andrea. Uh, First of all, we're talking about Space Command, which is the operational arm of Space Force. Space Force obviously will be uh, headquartered at the Pentagon. But we have been basically the epicenter of military space uh, going back through the 80s. We've been the provisional home of Space Command since it was set up as a branch of uh, 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 a part of Space Force. Uh, We think that uh, it's here. It's operating well. There are incredible threats uh, in the space domain, and uh, it really seems uh, illogical to us to uproot uh, the Space Command uh, with its danger to uh, national security Uh, and military readiness and spend a lot of money to move it to uh, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. The optics of this looks really bad. Let me put it that way. And what would be the impacts of the loss on the economics and identity of the city going forward? Well, we have a huge military presence, and we'll still have a big presence in 
uh, military space. You know, the entire world's GPS uh, system is run from Cairo Springs, things like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, projecting into the future, uh, Space Command will become an increasingly part, uh, an increasingly large part of uh, the military. Uh, and we would project that the presence of uh, defense contractors in the space domain uh, would be, uh, you know, over time, billions of dollars for the Colorado Springs economy. Space Command seems like a rare bipartisan issue in Colorado. Most Colorado leaders from Polis to Lamborn to both Democratic senators say they want to see it based here. Do you have any hope that the Biden administration might reverse the decision and return the bid to Colorado? I do have hope, and I don't think it's an unreasonable hope. Uh, Let me just point out two things. Number one, the optics of this last-minute decision by Trump to move it to Huntsville are really bad. Uh, you know, we have a congressman from Huntsville by the name of Mo Brooks who indicates that uh, he admits he had a meeting with the president, I think, on December 22nd to plan the rally that took place on uh, January 6th. He said he was asked personally by the president to be the warm-up act uh, for the president. In that uh, speech that he gave on uh, January 6th, he told the crowd to go up and to the Capitol and kick ass. Uh, he claims that, uh, and so does Tommy Tuberville, the new senator uh, from Alabama, who was very close to Trump because Trump campaigned for him to beat uh, Jeff Sessions, who mm-hmm. Trump obviously had issues with. Uh, both uh, Tuberville and Mo Brooks are claiming that they had a commitment from the president to move it to uh, Huntsville. The political, uh, the civilian political arm of the Air Force is claiming, oh no, this was a uh, uh, the Trump appointees know this was an objective decision, but they acknowledge they met with the president about it. And uh, we've got some pretty reliable, uh, high-ranking sources in the Air Force that say that have seen the report and say that it's just flat counterintuitive. Uh, concludes things like the schools are better in Huntsville, Alabama than Colorado Springs. Mm. Uh, that justifies common sense. Uh, the notion that uh, the uh, you know, quality of life is better in Huntsville than Colorado Springs after Colorado Springs is rated as having the best quality of life in the country for three years in a row by U.S. News and World Report, and Huntsville's not on the radar screen. Um, and and so I think our contention is, and that of the delegation, and, and it goes beyond that, and I'll mention that in a second, uh, is that either it was a political decision or it was a just a plain bad decision. Right. And I'm I'm I really feel good about the fact that we've got the attention of some senior people from outside Colorado, the Armed Forces uh, 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 House Armed Forces Committee uh, says that uh, you know two senior members said that the decision appears untethered uh, from considerations of national security and military readiness. So, uh, Andrea, I think there's you know uh, I, I think there's hope that the Biden administration will take a good hard look at this. And that you have a strong argument for it. El Paso County is one of the fastest growing counties in the state in terms of population. Colorado Springs plays a big role in that growth with sectors like the military, as we said, the Olympics training facility, healthcare, outdoor recreation. What are the city's plans to keep up with this influx of people, especially when it comes to things like affordable housing, transportation? Well, let's start with uh, uh, transportation, obviously an essential uh, role of uh, uh, government. 
As you know, Andrea, the uh, the voters in Colorado Springs have really stepped up over the last couple of years uh, to approve uh, significant increased spending on critical public infrastructure, roads, stormwater systems, and things like that. And uh, I really feel good about the willingness of local voters. I think they understand the connection between uh, infra- infrastructure and appropriate economic development. My biggest concern, frankly, is the state of Colorado. Uh, you know, we've a lot of our major thoroughfares are state highways. Powers Boulevard is uh, State Highway 21. Uh, highway 94 out to uh, Shreve Air Force Base is a state highway. Nevada Avenue is a state highway. Uh, with the development of Banning Lewis Ranch east of Colorado Springs, we have to have expansion of U.S. 24, and we need it going west uh, uh, to the mountains also. And frankly, I just don't see uh, the Colorado legislature over the last several years stepping up uh, to take uh, uh, transportation infrastructure very, uh, very seriously. You know, we've, we're kicking around some studies about front range rail and stuff like that, but nobody seems to be taking the bull by the horns. Right. Uh, and of course the voters aren't, but I, I can't fault the voters because they really haven't been given, you know, uh, here's what we need and this is exactly what we'll do with it. Uh, they've been given some, oh, give us some money and we'll make sure we spend it right. But that that doesn't uh, tend to give a, a great deal of confidence to voters. Let's move on to law enforcement, which has been under scrutiny in recent years. There was the controversial shooting of Devon Bailey by Colorado Springs Police in 2019, then questions about the handling of Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. The city now has a citizen-run police advisory commission, and you've said you support a commission But there's been some pushback. Um, People say this body won't have enough oversight power. And you said you're reluctant to give them that kind of power. What role do you think citizen oversight can and should play when it comes to police? Advisory. I think uh, they can uh, look into the uh, processes and procedures, the uh, uh, police department, the budget, all that sort of thing, and make recommendations to the uh, city council, uh, to the mayor. Uh, but um, I have a lot of experience in this, uh, Andrea. I was the chairman of the uh, Police Officer Standard and Training Board for 10 years as attorney general. I've looked around the country about uh, police oversight, and you don't turn uh, police oversight uh, over to uh, unelected uh, uh, citizens with no accountability to the, the citizenry. Um, that, in my opinion, is a, a political disaster. Uh, we have a, an excellent police department, and I hope that the LETAC committee uh, will you know, do some fact-finding, learn about the department, uh, learn about how it operates, uh, li- listen to citizens, uh, find out uh, you know, how uh, the department and citizens can better interact, what the citizens want to know about the department, uh, and make some uh, meaningful recommendations to the uh, uh, city council, to the mayor's office about the uh, uh, changes that they'd like to see happen in, in the police department. And you mentioned uh, LETAC. That's the Police Accountability Commission. I want to move on to COVID-19. Um, it's killed nearly 700 people in El Paso County since the beginning of the pandemic. Now we're seeing the beginnings of the vaccine rollout. Given the racial and socioeconomic disparities in vaccine access, how are you trying to ensure that folks in Colorado Springs um, get the vaccine when they need it, when it's their turn? 
Uh, good question. We have a, uh, uh, a committee of hospitals, uh, clinic providers, uh, include Safeway, Walgreens, all that sort of thing, uh, who talk on the telephone uh, every Wednesday at uh, 10 o'clock for an hour and, uh, you know, making sure that we're doing the best job we can, educating the uh, public about the availability uh, and, you know, making sure that people who, you know, aren't uh, in the the computer database for hospitals and clinics and things know where they can go to uh, get the uh, the vaccine. Frankly, I feel pretty good about how that's being set up. My concern uh, is the number of vaccines available. Uh, Andrea, there's 550,000 Coloradans over the age of 70. There's another 268,000, I think, between 65 and 70. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we... Uh, uh, you know, we got to make sure that uh, we get through the groups uh, as efficiently as possible so we can get to other groups. Uh, but it's a huge logistical uh, situation. But I am feeling good about the fact that we're working hard on making it equitable and everybody knows, you know, where they can go uh, to get a vaccine if they if they want it. What does it mean to you to be leading the city at this important milestone as it turns 150? You know, it, it's fun and it's exciting. I think it's a great time for the city to pause, reflect on its past, celebrate its past, and uh, project how we can use uh, some of the things we've learned in the past into the future. Uh, we, this city was founded, uh, unlike most cities, it was founded on pure aesthetics. Uh, General Palmer was, you know, kind of laying out a north-south railroad, came through here and said, oh, my gosh, this would be a beautiful place to build a resort town. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a cattle crossroads, uh, 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 you know, a river's uh, a crossing or anything like that. Uh, it was built for pure, pure, uh, pure beauty. And I remind our citizens uh, every day that our challenge 150 years and 485,000 people later is to continue to build a city that matches our scenery because that was that's what Palmer was doing. That was his challenge, and it remains our challenge today. I've always been curious. You held statewide roles as attorney general and head of corrections. What's the appeal to you of running a city? Um, and I should say Mayor Kaufman of Aurora has followed a similar path. Well, it's, it's not just a city. Uh, it's my city. Uh, I grew up in Colorado Springs. There aren't many, you know, I, I was born in Denver, adopted when I was three weeks old. So I unabashedly, by folks in Colorado Springs, I unabashedly call myself a native. Uh, and I love this city. And, uh, uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, talking to law firms and thinking about how many millions of dollars I could make over the next several years after I left the AG's office, um uh, Colorado Springs had gone to a strong mayor form of government in 2011, and Andrea, it had some tough, uh, tough couple of years. Uh, my predecessor was a smart guy, loved Colorado Springs. He didn't have uh, great political or diplomatic skills, and Colorado Springs was struggling in 2015. Uh, we had about a billion and a half dollar uh, uh, infrastructure deficit. Uh, job creation was pretty stagnant. And I thought that I could bring something to the table, and it would be a great challenge. And I uh, decided to take it on, and I have absolutely no regrets about it. Uh, we've uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last six years. Mayor Southers, thanks so much for joining us. 
Uh, Thank you, Andrea. Appreciate it very much. John Southers is the Republican mayor of Colorado Springs, a role he's been serving since 2015. He previously served as attorney general of Colorado and head of the Colorado Department of Corrections. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A voting technology company based in Colorado is at the center of a string of defamation lawsuits. They involve former President Donald Trump's allies and their baseless claims about the election. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, has been following the story closely, and she's here with us. Hi, Benta. Hi, thanks for having me. Remind us about Dominion voting systems and why they're at the center of all of this. Sure. Dominion is one of the largest voting technology companies in the country. The company is headquartered in Denver and sells software and voting equipment to 28 states. It's played a starring role in Republican conspiracy theories about election stealing and was a big focus of Donald Trump and his allies after the election. All but two of Colorado's counties use Dominion, and so do swing states like Georgia. So who has the company sued so far? The company's filed two defamation lawsuits seeking $1.3 billion in damages. The first suit came earlier in January. It was against Sidney Powell, a former attorney for President Donald Trump's campaign. And this week, Dominion sued former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, a personal attorney of Trump's. Tom Clare is an attorney representing Dominion, and he says Giuliani and others pushed a viral disinformation campaign that has destroyed the company's value and endangered its employees. Clare says the goal of these defamation cases is not to settle, but to go to trial. Obviously, part of the the lawsuit is to make sure Dominion is compensated for the economic and reputational harm that it has suffered. But it is also important that this be done in public. Uh, that we have a trial on these issues and that um, these these false allegations are disproven once and for all for the American public to see so that they can have faith in their election systems. What are some of those allegations being made against Dominion? Basically, that the machines switched votes from Trump to Biden. Giuliani has called the company very frightening and strange. And here he is in mid-November on a Fox Business television interview. So we're using a foreign company that is owned by Venezuelans who are close to, we're close to uh, Chavez, are now close to Maduro, and they are extremely hackable. I I would say Dominion was founded in 2003 in Canada. It does not have any ties to Venezuelan leadership. And uh, the lawsuit also alleges that Giuliani said the company told election officials to add fake ballots and that it could subtly change votes. Hand counts in Georgia and audits in Colorado did not show any irregularities with Dominion machines tallying ballots. And that's true in other states as well. Dominion's attorney, Claire, says he hopes all the evidence against Giuliani will come out in court. He knew from the outset, the complaint alleges that There was no evidence that the election was rigged, and that's why even Mr. Giuliani didn't make those claims in court, but he made them on television and online where they would do maximum damage to Dominion, but face minimal scrutiny. So what has Giuliani said about the lawsuit? 
A talk radio station in New York posted a statement from Giuliani. In some ways, he seemed to welcome it. He said the defamation lawsuit would allow him to investigate the company's history, finances, and practices fully and completely. And Giuliani said the amount being asked for, $1.3 billion, is intended to frighten people. Giuliani called it an act of intimidation by the, quote, hate-filled left wing to wipe out and censor the exercise of free speech. And he said he'll look into a countersuit against Dominion for violating his constitutional rights. How tough is it to prove a defamation lawsuit? Steve Zansberg is a top First Amendment attorney in Denver. I talked to him. He represents media organizations, including Colorado Public Radio. He said it's not easy to prove defamation. You need to show actual malice. Actual malice is a term of art in First Amendment law, and it means either a knowing falsity, just an outright lie, or a statement that is made with a high degree of awareness of its probable falsity, meaning it's more likely false than it is true. And it's a subjective test. That's why there it's extremely typically very protracted litigation and a lot of discovery into what the defendant knew when he or she made the statements at issue. You know, even if Dominion did win, the company has said no amount of money could ever fully compensate them for the reputation being destroyed and the human cost. A high-level employee, Eric Coomer, who lives in Colorado, he went into hiding shortly after the election when he became the subject of conspiracy theories that he personally had masterminded a high-tech plot to steal the election. Uh, it's a charge Coomer categorically denies. And in late December, Coomer sued Giuliani and the Trump campaign and other Trump pro-Trump media outlets, among others, alleging defamation. And Kumar said he remains in fear for himself and his family. Other Dominion employees have also faced threats, harassment, online trolls being called traitors. And are more lawsuits coming? And when can we expect them? Yes. Dominion said there will be more lawsuits. It's not ruling out anyone from Fox News personalities to Trump himself. And the company said it's looking at each case on the merits and moving deliberately yet quickly. Have any states or election officials spoke out in support of Dominion through this process? Yes. Uh, the people who run elections in both political parties have defended Dominion. In Colorado, the company was actually selected by a bipartisan committee under former Secretary of State Republican Wayne Williams, and that was back in 2015. And Williams said Dominion has been independently tested and audited more than 800 times and passed every audit. So Colorado is one of the few states in the country that goes back after elections and checks the tallies on the machines against the votes on the original paper ballots. It's called a risk-limiting audit. Election officials in other states like Georgia have also said the audits and recounts show no irregularities. But I would say it's hard to know what political pressures officials may face about renewing contracts with Dominion in the future, because millions of people and voters believe Dominion was at the center of a fraudulent election. Thank you, Benta. Thanks so much. CPR's Benta Berkland. Coming up, what happens when there's an emergency like a wildfire and the alerts are only in English? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state. 
and CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. About half of Coloradans live in areas where wildfire is a risk. For the most part, it's up to residents to do the work to protect their homes. But cutting down beloved trees isn't always easy. Our wildfire series continues with this report from CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis. As Shelley Olson walks around the charred rubble of what was her Grand Lake home, she points to a pile of things that survived one of the largest wildfires in state history. You can see my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law piled all of my silver for my grandmother. We just kind of did some digging. All the silver was right around here, so the dining room. Dining room area. Olson is the assistant chief for Grand County Fire, and for the last 10 years, she's focused her work on helping communities protect themselves from flames. She formed the Grand County Wildfire Council to educate residents on what to do. I didn't think it would happen to me. No. Like, EMTs are really bad patients. Like, nurses and doctors, we're really bad patients. It's like that. You know, we're so good at speaking about it and telling everyone else, and then do we always take our own advice? You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. Olson does believe the work she did around her home to try and prevent it from burning down would have worked if the East Troublesome Fire had behaved more normally. It exploded in a single night. Residents had minutes to evacuate. We accepted the risk to live in the woods. And so we have to do everything we can to be adaptive to living in the woods. But when a firestorm like this comes through, it's like, what could we have done? But you have to keep spreading the word. Wildfire is not going away. Climate change likely means more fires. And with more people living in risky areas, mitigation becomes more important. Individuals can do a lot. But if a neighbor hasn't cleared dead material, kept the lawn green and trimmed, and cut down some trees, it leaves both homes at risk. But working together can be hard. Hannah Brinkert-Smith is an assistant research professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. There are some people who are going to do it and some people who aren't. But there's a lot that can shift in a community. And what we want to do is understand how and why. And can that knowledge be leveraged? Brinkert-Smith works with a team of social scientists and wildfire practitioners, like Shelley Olson, to help their efforts, which she says are worth it. We're spending so much money on suppression. Firefighters are putting their lives at risk. When we could be investing instead at the front end of the problem. And at that front end, actions by human beings are the key to reducing risk. The Wiry team does research in different states and in every place they've worked. When people report that they've talked with their neighbor about wildfire risk, they have reported doing more risk mitigation. That's why the leading wildfire preparedness program requires a local resident to take the lead on getting their neighborhood prepared. And then they go and connect with those neighbors and help them identify the risks because they're a known figure. That's Megan Fitzgerald McGowan, a program specialist with FireWise USA. They're not scary. They're not the government. They're your neighbor. The FireWise program is under the National Fire Protection Association, which has done years of research on what helps to keep a home from burning down. They've found that it's not usually a wall of flames that destroys a building. Instead, embers will land on a nearby tree or a pile of dead leaves or whatever is stuck in the gutters. 
When that catches fire, the home can be next, and then the next. It's kind of like that idea of herd immunity. Your property can impact my property and maybe that person across the street. And if we all work together to reduce that shared risk, we improve our overall situation. In a private Silverthorne subdivision, Lisa Kendall and Doug Spain-Hauer are caretakers for portions of the land. They live here, and the Homeowners Association hires them to do work around the property. 20 years ago... This whole ranch looked completely different. There was dense forest the whole ranch was. So all the people that lived here, that's what they were used to. They didn't take into consideration the fact that it was basically a tinderbox. Doug and Lisa were concerned for their community, so they started talking to their neighbors about doing firewise work. At first, it didn't look promising. Just that initial angst over, oh, you want to cut live trees, why? It took a little while for people to digest that having a live tree right near your home, that equates to more risk to your house burning down. Once they started doing the work, the homeowners realized the benefits. It's easier to walk through, it's easier to ride the horses through, there's a lot more wildlife. It's not such a bad thing to not have so many trees around us anymore. And the growing threat of wildfire has motivated the community to keep up the work. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. When wildfires strike a community, residents who need information don't always have access to it. Spanish-speaking communities in Colorado's Eagle and Garfield counties have been ravaged by fires in recent years, and they've dealt with this lack of information firsthand. Fire response teams have few bilingual members and offer poorly translated or culturally insensitive information. Elizabeth Velasco is a professional translator in Glenwood Springs who's trying to change this. And Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much. Give me an example of a situation that put people in a fire-prone area in danger because they couldn't speak English. Well, the number one um, situation that I think of, it's when people need to be evacuated. Um, so you, they need to be to make sure that this information is in Spanish so that they know that they need to get out of the house because they're in danger. That's life or death. Mm. We mentioned fires hit Eagle and Garfield counties in the central and western parts of the state. What does the Latino population look like there? Where do they live and work? Yeah, so we live in the, in the Tri-County area. It's uh, it's Pitkin, Garfield, and Eagle counties. And we are about 30% of the population here. Um, on the I-70 corridor, we're, there, we have probably about 100,000 people. So we're 30,000 people. And we, we live in Garfield and in Eagle, but a lot of people work in Pitkin because that's when where Aspen is, where the, the mountain, the ski resorts are. Um, so there's a lot of traveling um, that happens on the I-70 corridor between the Tri-County area. So these counties were struck by two big wildfires in recent years, the Lake Christine fire in 2018 and the Grizzly Creek fire last year. What are some other issues that Spanish speakers run into in terms of accessing information about those fires? So the ones that I can see is that the information is not coming out at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you have an alert or an emergency text that comes out in English, that information is not available in Spanish right away. Um, And sometimes it can take days or at the beginning of the fires, we weren't even getting any Spanish information. 
uh, and with the Grizzly Creek fire um, that affected I-70. And that's like our main road here. So that was a big deal that people didn't know what the alternative roads were. Where else can we go to to get to work? Because some people also travel and have to go to Vail for work. Um, So that was a big deal. And when did you first notice this kind of information was lacking for folks? So I I grew up here in the Valley. I I grew up in in Eagle County. I've lived in Colorado for 17 years. So this is not a new thing. Uh, This this is something that, that we've always had to deal with. Um, there, there just isn't enough information in Spanish, and there's also not enough outreach from the counties to our Latino community. And what specifically are you doing to change all this? So what I'm doing, it's um, I in my business, I promote language justice, and that means giving the power to people so that they can express themselves in the language of their heart. And that's something that I started learning and that I'm doing for the past couple of years because I'm I'm a medical interpreter and I've been doing Mm -hmm. that for seven years. But I've been really working hard with our community in the past two years uh, on explaining to my clients that it's not enough to just offer Spanish information. Because if your marketing for your event, it was not done in Spanish, if you're not doing outreach to local leaders, they're not going to come and they're not going to be able to see your information. So there's also, um, so there's a lot more to do. It's not just having information in Spanish. It's about the outreach. It's about having Latinos in positions of power. And yeah, so the language is just one part. And Latinos may make up a big part of this region, but as you said, they don't often make up a large portion of elected leaders, and they're not on fire crews a lot. How much does this lead to a lack of trust for Latino communities? Do they feel that others have their best interests in mind? Yeah, so I do feel like we are a little bit isolated and like the... or. Uh, opinions don't matter because we're not included in all these decision-making tables and or officials or elected officials um, are uh, Anglos and they've been in 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 positions of power for some over 24 years (laughs) so um, I think that's that's why diversity is so important because you have different points of views uh, different opinions and different li- lived experiences uh, when it comes to making decisions. And um, especially with our teams or incident teams that were coming to our communities, they don't know the community. Like they come from Alaska, from, from other states. Mm. So it's really important uh, for them to work with our community leaders to make sure that everybody's being served. Is there any effort to get more Latino folks onto these fire crews? I really hope that the, that there is. <laughs> I know that uh, the um, there are some scholarships for people who want to go into the for national forest uh, positions and opportunities because some of those people were also helping. Uh, and I would love to see more bilingual people in in fire crews and things like that. And I'm also taking some firefighter classes. Um, soon in February and March uh, to be able to to respond and be available 
uh, wow. for for the fire season because we, as we know, it's just getting worse. Your agency translated information about the Grizzly Creek fire for two months. How do you know if your work really made a difference? So I, I, I'm really sure that we made a difference, you know, like because I was connected, I was translating the information, but I was also doing a lot of um, work in connecting to local nonprofits and also connecting to our local Spanish uh, news outlets, so like or or local radio stations in Spanish, um, and we were having live informational sessions with the experts, the fire experts and the Spanish uh, community. And we were also having um, or reports translated every day. <laughs> and we had community meetings every other day that were simultaneously broadcasted into Spanish into one of the Eagle County Facebook pages. And I feel like a lot of people wouldn't sign up for the Spanish um, meeting right away, but then we would get a lot of views after. So after even one day, we already had a thousand views on some of our um, some of our videos, and we were also receiving a lot of texts of people um, asking questions about the roads and and things like this. So I can see that it really helped a lot. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Elizabeth Velasco is a translator. She's working to make sure information about wildfires is available for Latino residents in fire-prone areas. Her agency is Global Language Services. Hidden Valley Road has been named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by the New York Times Book Review. It's about a Colorado Springs family with 12 children. Six of the kids had schizophrenia. The Galvin family became a case study for scientists trying to understand the condition and its genetic markers. Their story also illustrates the challenges mental illness poses for all family members. I spoke with Robert Kolker, author of Hidden Valley Road, in July. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to talk to you. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about schizophrenia, and obviously it's not the same for every person who deals with it. But generally, can you explain how it manifests in people? It's certainly not a cookie-cutter condition, but there are certain hallmarks of, of the illness, none of which have anything to do with the split personality that some people believe hmm. uh, in our culture believe that schizophrenia is. It, it often involves withdrawing from reality. It involves a gulf between perception and reality. Sometimes that's catatonia. Sometimes that's paranoia. Uh, other times it's delusions. Uh, other times it's hallucinations. Um, but in in every event, it's a very loud disease. The person you knew sort of disappears from view and is replaced by someone you don't recognize, which what's, is what makes it so tragic for families that experience it and what made the family I wrote about so compelling as a subject. And Schizophrenia is often a condition that doesn't show up until someone is perhaps in their late teens or early 20s, or at least, you know, the condition isn't apparent to others until then. Is that right? Exactly. There's, I guess there's some overlap between strange teenage behavior and some of the symptoms of what could develop into 
full-blown schizophrenia by one's early 20s. And so it's hard to to peg, particularly um, with a large family where you may not be paying attention that much or at a time like the 60s and 70s when this family, the Galvin family, was really enduring the worst of the manifestations. And 12 children. I should note that there were 10 boys in the Galvin family and two girls. Neither of the girls had schizophrenia and four of the boys didn't either. Again, six did. But I want to start with the title of your book, Hidden Valley Road. It's the name of the street where the family lived. It was a 1960s ranch style house. Is there something important about the street, the house and its surroundings that tells part of the story? Well, it it's a fortuitous name if you're telling the story about family secrets and about a family that was driven by the stigma of mental illness to stay hidden for so long. It was an upwardly mobile and kind of hip suburban community when they moved there in the 60s. Uh, it was generally populated by a lot of people who were employed by the Air Force Academy nearby who were getting a, their families were getting too big for living on, on the grounds of the Air Force Academy. So they got a nice ranch house of their own. It's a nice wooded area, very, a little different from the rest of Colorado in that area in that it, there were actual trees and wildlife. So they loved it. So let's talk about the oldest Galvin brother, Donald. He's the first one you really profile. And Donald, like many of the Galvin kids, was athletic. He was a bit reserved in school. But things really started changing for him as he got older. Tell us about the illness and how it affected him. Sure. The, the, the 12 children, are, by the way, are born during the baby boom. So Donald was born in 1945, and the youngest child, uh, a girl, uh, Mary, was born in 65. And then he went off to college in 64 when, when he was you know, 18 or 19. And then he, um, within a year, was, was becoming a regular at the health services camp, uh, office. He kept walking in with really strange complaints. Um, he thought he might accidentally get a venereal disease from the toilet, things like that. But then things got a little more troubling. He ran into a bonfire during a pep rally, and nobody could explain why he did that. He had minor burns from that. He tortured a cat. Nobody could under explain, and, and least of all him, why he did that. Until finally they referred him for psychiatric treatment, which in the late 60s is a huge alarm bell for a family because this is a period where half of the psychiatric community wants to heavily medicated and institutionalized people like this, and the other half wants to blame their mothers for causing the problem. Uh, this isn't an understatement. This, this is a period where the schizophrenogenic mother is a concept that is blamed for mental illness, for schizophrenia. And so the family was immediately scandalized and tried to hope for the best and hope that Donald would work his way out of his troubles. So they shopped around for a good medical opinion, and he stayed in college a little longer, finished college, even got married, but got worse and worse and worse until finally in 1970, he was sent to the state mental hospital in Pueblo after a violent altercation with his wife. And you mentioned um, the mothers that often took the blame, like the mother in, in the book and um, is named Mimi, Mimi Galvin. Talk about the range of effects schizophrenia had on the other five boys. There's this strange period from the late 60s through up until 1980 where it seems like one by one something is coming for this family and nobody's giving them a good explanation of what it is. Everybody sort of suspects that there's something genetic about schizophrenia, but 
nobody can really nail it down. And, and part of the story of Hidden Valley Road is the story of scientists trying to figure that out. But it's not a cookie-cutter condition, and so each brother is a little different. And my job in telling the family story isn't just to tell a monster movie about the boys becoming sick one by one. It's to talk about them as individuals. Donald was detached from, from other people, had real interpersonal problems, and eventually became hyper-religious and uh, delusional, believing that he was descended from an octopus. And then Jim was very much more paranoid Jim is the second son, and, and he engaged in a lot of self-harm and then eventually was abusive to his wife and to um, the two younger sisters in a real tragic aspect of the book. Brian uh, seemed fine, but then uh, after breaking up with his girlfriend, he murdered her and then killed himself. Uh, Joe was, was more poignant than the others. He was more self-aware. He knew when he was having hallucinations. He would look up in the sky and say that, you know, can't you see it? Uh, I'm having a hallucination. A Chinese emperor is talking to me in the sky, but he was really the only one who kind of knew that he was sick. Matthew had a psychotic break at a neighbor's, at a, at a friend, family friend's house. He suddenly stripped naked and smashed a vase. You know, later on, he believed he was Paul McCartney and that he controlled the weather. And finally, Peter was, um, was really oppositional and defiant throughout his teenage years. So, um, when he finally had a psychotic break, it, it just added another layer of complication. And he, he entered this whole cycle of going from, from jail to home to the streets and to jail again, um, all on minor charges, and just could never really be compliant with his medications, which only made life worse for him. The boys deal with a lot of trouble and violence in their lives. There's fighting among them in the house and injuries. Is there something about the illness that can lead to this kind of behavior? Yes, to the extent that if you aren't entirely engaged with the world around you, you can become anxious. And if you're left to your own devices and there aren't, you know, psychiatric interventions at a young age, you really can become so anxious that what might start as everyday conflicts with your family suddenly become more intense. These boys, you know, were growing up during this triumphant period in American history in the 50s where America was ascendant. They were living first at and then near an Air Force base where they had the run of the place and could do whatever they wanted. They had fights in the house, but that seemed normal too. But then the fights got worse and worse and worse, and the parents weren't sure whether to play it as it laid or, or to decide that there was something you know, seriously wrong. And so they, they of course, had no um, sense that schizophrenia was taking over their family, and so they chose to hope for the best. But in in the meanwhile, the the injuries mounted and the violence mounted, and it became this kind of unsafe place. My job in Hidden Valley Road is to try to get to the bottom of how much of that is mental illness and how much of that is, you know, the times that the family was living in. And I talked to everybody in the family. One nice thing about this book is that everybody in the family spoke for it, and everyone's perspective is engaged in the book. The sisters were both sexually abused, you mentioned, by one of the brothers, Jim. What was it like for the girls growing up in this kind of household? I would hope that readers sort of identify with them or relate to them as, as sort of the mainstays of the book, that, that you, there are so many characters and so much difficulty and so much plot to follow that I, I would hope that you can keep coming back to the girls as the people experiencing what's going on or eye, witnessing what's going on. 
And then you see how they move through trauma and their stories are very different from one another, but at the same time, each one is quite inspiring. And there's a lot of material in part two of the book about how they come to terms with what happened to them as children, how they come back into their families on their own terms. And that to me was the second big question of the book. The first one was how could all this happen to one family? And the second question was, how could this family really stay a family? And the sisters help answer that question through their recoveries. Based on what you've seen um, of the Galvin family over time, has the stigma changed around mental illness at all? Well, these were really hard subjects for them to talk about. And the entire reason they went public, I think, was to try to do battle with that stigma. Things are better now, but they're not great. I mean, I think over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen bipolar illness and depression and anxiety and autism all, you know, but to varying degrees become less less of a stigma around all of those. And schizophrenia may be the last one. It's the one that families talk about the least. I know personally people I know whose lives have been touched by it. They almost never talk about it. Hopefully a book like this can open things up. And based on the reaction to the book so far, I'm, I'm filled with hope about that. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Andrea. I really appreciate it. Robert Kolker is the author of Hidden Valley Road. It's been named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by the New York Times Book Review. We spoke in July. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring the show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis with special thanks to climate team reporter Miguel Otarola. This is CPR News.